Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 1.20, Tertullian Messalina, The Wife Who Lived. It's always nice to end any series with a bit of a bang, leave the best to last and all that. Sadly though, history doesn't always play ball, meaning that this will not be the longest of episodes, as Nero's last wife is also, arguably, his least well-known. An intelligent yet mysterious woman, Cecilia made her mark in the dying days of Nero's reign, but her impact has, sadly, been little studied. Before we get going, I'd like to thank all of my patrons on Patreon who have been supporting this podcast from the very beginning. You're all so amazing. If you'd like to join those patrons and become a supporter of this podcast, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. And finally, stick around to the very end of this podcast, as I'll be making a few announcements about the subject of the next series and a few changes that will be made going forward. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. As we discussed in the episode last time, Nero's grief over the death of his wife, Papia Sabina, quite possibly at his own hands, knew no bounds. His final years saw further turmoil in his personal life, while his political fortunes collapsed all around him. He took male lovers and female lovers and subjected them to all sorts of weird stuff. But amongst all of this, he did take a third wife. A female one. Her name was Cecilia Messalina. As I said in the introduction, Cecilia is a mysterious and shadowy figure, and that's largely because she's always in the background of the great drama happening in the imperial court between her marriage to Nero in 66 and his suicide two years later. We get snippets from the sources, but nothing concrete. We know little for sure, but there's still enough to get a little of the measure of this woman. 
While at university, I took quite a few ancient history courses, and one lecture has really stuck with me. It was part of a course on the first half of the Roman Imperial period, and this was in one of the introductory sections. The lecturer, who I came to know quite well during my studies and is a well-respected academic, stood up and said something along the lines of, What I'm about to teach you over the next few weeks is the sum of centuries of scholarship and knowledge. It is, to the best of our knowledge, what happened. At least, half of it is probably not true. But it's all we have, so we'll just have to make do with it. I think a lot of that will have to apply in this episode as well. The first problem that we have when examining Satilia Messalina's life is that we don't know for sure who her parents were, which is never a good start. From her name, we know that she was a member of the Satilius Taurus clan, a family whose most illustrious ancestor was Titus Statilius Taurus, a novus homo, or new man, from the Civil War and early Augustan periods. He had initially been a supporter of Mark Antony, but had switched to Octavian's side before the tensions between the two broke out into open warfare. For his actions in the Civil War, he was awarded a triumph, served two consulships, with his greatest glory coming in his command of the land forces at the decisive Battle of Actium. For these and more achievements, he managed to found a political dynasty, with son after son, all bearing the same name, serving as powerful senators. The third of these, Titus Satilius Taurus, followed a standard career trajectory of an influential senator from a good family, rising up the ranks to become a consul in 11 CE. He also achieved a good marriage, as would be expected of him, tying the knot with the daughter of another important senator, this one named Marcus Valerius Messala Corvinus. Together, they had a few children, one of whom, Titus Satilius Taurus Corvinus, are you sick of these names yet, is the first candidate for being the father of Satilia Messalina. However, Satilia may also have been the child of his sister, who, of course, because why make things nice and easy, was also called Satilia Messalina. I haven't been able to find information about who her other parents would have been on either side, sadly, largely because her names all come from this side of the family. Now, of course, we've come across a Messalina before. Valeria Messalina had been the third wife and first empress of Emperor Claudius. As you might imagine, she was related to Satilia, though not especially closely. The consensus in most of the sources that I have read, though, is that Satilia was the daughter of Titus, so I will proceed in this episode on that assumption. Titus followed in the family tradition of entering the Senate and rising up the ranks to become consul, which he achieved in 45, during the reign of Emperor Claudius. However, in the following year, he was arrested for treason, accused of being part of a conspiracy hatched to overthrow the emperor, which led to him either being killed or exiled. His daughter, Statilia, was born just over a decade before this, though, in around 35. Her childhood life is an almost complete mystery, as is her early adulthood, which is a massive shame because the little that we do know is really interesting. Tacitus makes the claim that Nero, when she married him, was her fifth, yes, fifth husband, at the age of 31. Even if she married at the earliest possible opportunity, that's about one husband every three years. And yet, to my great regret, we have no idea who the first three are or when she married them. But from that alone, we can suggest that she was either a bit of a man-eater or a black widow. 
But now I can finally start telling you things that we do know. Or at least, things that our ancient historians have told us. At some point in this period, after the death of Papia, Emperor Nero began an affair with Statilia. Reports of this come both from the accounts of Suetonius and Tacitus. However, this does not appear to have been a serious fling, at least at first, as the two did not get married. Instead, she married someone else in this period, for the fourth time of course. He was called Marcus Julius Vestinus Atticus. He was a close friend of Nero's, whose career had thus far flourished thanks to his patronage. Indeed, in this year, 65, he was serving as consul. Tacitus describes him as being a violent and headstrong man, well suited, I guess, for being a member of Nero's entourage. But it seems at this point that year, they had fallen out. Quote, Nero's hatred of him had had his origin in intimate companionship, Vestinus seeing through and despising the emperor's cowardice, while Nero feared the high spirit of his friend, who often bantered him with that rough humour which, when it draws largely on facts, leaves a bitter memory behind it. Tassus goes on to state that the final straw had been Vestinus marrying Statilia. Quote, An additional and recent motive was that Vestinus had contracted a marriage with Statilia Messalina, though well aware that the emperor was also among her paramours. The implication here, when reading between the lines, is that Statilia had a reputation for being a bit of a floozy. Quite apart from her harem of ex-husbands, Tacitus is suggesting here that she had quite the group of lovers gaggling around her, not just the emperor. The fact that this seems to be related without too much scandal also suggests that these were fairly high-level people with whom she was hooking up. This is quite interesting, as though she was from a decent family, it certainly wasn't from one of Rome's great senatorial clans. She didn't have the patronage of a well-respected father to help her, as he had fallen under a cloud of treason, and one suspects that her pantheon of former husbands didn't much help either. For her to still be in the centre of attention, causing such strife amongst such powerful and influential people, suggests two things. First, she was likely a beautiful woman, able to attract powerful men to her despite her dodgy family history. And second, far more importantly, she must have possessed great charm and persuasiveness to entice them all. For a woman in her position in Roman culture at that time, it was vitally important to have the safety net of some powerful man, at least until you had built some sort of a power base for yourself. This could be a family member or a husband, The more powerful the person, the more greater the protection you got, at least theoretically. Now, without knowing who her former husbands were, or why they had left the stage before her marriage to Vestinus, we can't know all that much about her social position up to that point. But we can speculate that this was a long process of rising up and then holding on tightly to the greasy pole of Roman social politics for Statilia. And she may have done it all on her own using her own wits, gumption, and personal assets. She certainly had made a great impression on Nero, as the sources claim that he resorted to some very dirty tactics to prize his mistress away from his former friend. Now, one thing to note is that this story does bear quite a few similarities to how Nero managed to secure his marriage to Papir. 
That too was a tale of one of his mistresses being married to one of his friends, him getting jealous, and then using his powers as emperor to remove the man from the board, so that he could marry their wife. Now this does not mean that they can't both be true. Nero certainly seems to be the kind of insecure compulsive person that might pull off this move twice. Moreover, since it's related in two different sources, this does give a measure of likelihood to it, but it is worth noting that it could just be a bit of lazy, copy-paste-style ancient historianship. The timeline of this is also very important, as this was all going down after the exposure of the Pisonian conspiracy. Remember that this was the great bloated plot to oust Nero in 65 that had been exposed in April of that year. Even now, a few months later, investigations and recriminations were ongoing as Nero's agents sought to divine how deep the plot went. Scores of senators, equestrians and freedmen had already been executed, forced to commit suicide or exiled. And so it seems that Nero saw this as a convenient way to get rid of his love rival. Now, in actual fact, despite known enmity with the emperor, the conspirators had not actually shared their plans with Vestinus, basically because they didn't really like him, but Nero wasn't going to let a detail like that get in his way. Tacitus, who always delights in describing in bloody detail a murder carried out on Nero's orders, describes what happens thusly. Again, like last time, if you don't like stories of graphic murder, I'd skip ahead a little. Quote, Accordingly, with neither a charge nor an accuser forthcoming, Nero, precluded from assuming the character of judge, turned to plain despotic force and sent out the tribune Gerilanus with a cohort of soldiers. Vestinus maintained a house overlooking the forum and a retinue of handsome slaves of uniform age. On that day, he had performed all his duties as consul and was entertaining some guests, fearless of danger or perhaps by way of hiding his fears, when the soldiers entered and announced to him the tribune's summons. He rose without a moment's delay, and every preparation was at once made. He shut himself into his chamber. A physician was at hand. His veins were opened. With life still strong in him, he was carried into a bath and plunged into warm water without uttering a word of pity for himself. In the meantime, the guests who had been at the table with him were surrounded by guards, nor were they released till an hour late of the night, when Nero, laughing at the dismay which he had been picturing in his mind's eye of the diners were awaiting destruction at the feast, observed that they had paid dearly enough for their consular banquet. Suetonius backs up the basic tenets of this story, though it doesn't go into anything like that kind of detail, merely stating that, quote, To possess Sotilia Messalina, he slew her husband Atticus Vestinus while he held the office of consul. It's worth reminding you at this point that Tacitus and Suetonius both hate Nero, and neither are above a bit of embellishment and exaggeration in order to make him look bad. That said, we can't reasonably say that the broad thrust of this story is false without more evidence. If we accept Tacitus' story that Vestinus was murdered at his house while hosting a lavish banquet, it is reasonable to suppose that Satilia would have been present while all this was going on. She may have been one of those terrifying guests, not knowing if she too would share in the consul's fate. It seems unlikely that she had been on the plot. If she had, then there were likely more lethal ways of getting her out of that marriage. The description of the murder, that it was done by a doctor slitting open his veins, 
suggests that Nero was attempting to present Vestinus's death as a suicide, an honourable way out after his treasonous crime had been exposed. Suicide didn't have the taboo in Roman times as it would in later years, especially in Christian circles. That said, it seems that no one believed the story. They all knew this was really the vicious solving of a love triangle, populated by a beautiful woman and two fierce love rivals. In 66 then, Satilia became Nero's third wife and empress of Rome. Information though about her time as empress is sadly rather scant. We know that she was with Nero in 66 at a great ceremony in Rome where he invested Tiridates as king of Armenia, an enormously significant act that ended a dispute over the kingdom with the Parthians. And then she went with Nero on a lavish trip to Greece. As I've said, Nero was not your typical Roman politician. He didn't care for rulership and governance. He was, at heart, a performer. He loved to sing, to act, to dance, to race chariots, all in front of adoring crowds at Pompey's Theatre, the Circus Maximus, and other great performing venues across Rome. Or at least, crowds that had been ordered to adore him. Now, this was very shameful. Actors and performers were near the very bottom of the Roman caste system, not all that far above untouchables such as slaves and gladiators. It wouldn't do for any kind of Roman aristocrat to cavort with such people, let alone an emperor. It made him a figure of scorn and embarrassment amongst the Roman elite, which, in turn, made Nero hate them all the more strongly. This had been going on for his entire reign, but nowhere was this more apparent than his trip to Greece at the end of 66, which lasted for all of 67. As I said before, Nero was a great lover of all things Greek, and the main purpose of this trip, for him at least, was to see all the sights and take in all of Greek culture that he possibly could, including performing at the Olympic Games. Indeed, he actually had to bribe the Greeks into delaying the Games for a year so that he could take part, and also to include new artistic events into the programme of competition. He quote-unquote won every event in which he took place, including in athletics, singing, playing the lyre, and acting. Sometimes it really does help to be emperor. Satilia, being a proper Roman noble, not to mention a woman, did not take place in these festivities. But she was with Nero for the duration of this trip, and this was probably because Nero still harboured ambitions of fathering a son. He was still in his late 20s, and so there was likely plenty of time for him to sire a male heir. But you could never take anything for granted in the Roman world. Therefore, it's likely that Nero and Satilia would have spent a great deal of time attempting to have a child together at this time. And we also know they attended various religious shrines and oracles together in order to better their chances. This, of course, did not mean he didn't still dote on his two male mistresses, Sporus and Pythagoras, who were also there on the trip. Greece had been under Roman control for two centuries, but Nero decided that, thanks to his love of the place, he wanted to grant the Greeks their freedom. Now, this did not mean that they were actually free. Good lord, no. They were still very much part of the empire. But they were exempted from imperial taxation and senatorial administration, which wasn't nothing. As a thank you, Satilia and Nero were granted great honours by the Greeks at one of his last festivals, though the sources are unclear 
as to what exactly these honours were. However, outside of attempting to produce an heir and appearing together at grand ceremonies, it appears that Nero and Satilia lived pretty separate lives, especially once the imperial party returned to Rome in 68. He lived his life of pleasure, while she preferred to live in more literary and cultured circles, discussing Homer and Virgil. She was certainly highly educated and intellectually curious, notable at a time when such things were hardly encouraged in Roman women. But it seems that she was shut out of any real exercise of power. A combination of a disinterested emperor and the fact that she had not yet provided the empire with a son meant that she remained for her entire time as empress in the shadows. Nero's reign as emperor came to an abrupt end in 68. He had managed to survive a couple of major coup attempts, but much of this had been down to dumb luck rather than any real love that those in power actually had for him. Out in the provinces, the legions, one after another, began to abandon their allegiances to their emperor, and instead declared that they would only follow their own generals, and raise them to the rank of emperor. The most significant of these was an army in Gaul, who hailed their commander Vindex as their emperor. However, for various reasons, he didn't want the job, and instead declared his loyalty to the governor of Upper Spain, Galba. Now, Galba has actually turned up in our story before. He had been a great career soldier, senator and governor from an old patrician family, and had been Agrippina's first choice to be her second husband back in 41, but had rejected her advances. Vindex's insurrection was crushed, but support for Galba continued to build and build out in the empire, and soon he had a flock of men and influential politicians flocking to his banner. The rebellion eventually reached critical mass, when first the Senate declared Nero an enemy of the state, and then the Praetorian prefect Sabinus declared for Galba. Nero attempted to flee, but the sailors at the port of Ostia refused him passage. He returned to the palace and tried to get some sleep, but woke in the morning to a chilling sight. He was almost all alone. His guards were gone. Most of his retinue had gone. And, most importantly for us, his wife had also abandoned him. She was no dummy. She knew which way the winds were blowing. She knew what had happened to the last empress who had stood by her man when the soldiers came to overthrow him. She had no desire to share in Nero's fate. The very fact that she had been shut out from power, in the end, saved her life. She was not associated with the regime, and so was able to slip away and survive. Nero was not so lucky. Surrounded by his various lovers, including Sporus, he fled the city to the villa of one of his last remaining allies, and there he stabbed himself to death. His body was then given a proper Roman burial by Claudia Acte, and his ashes deposited in the tomb of his father. Satilia was nowhere to be seen in any of this. From the moment that she had heard about the impending coup, she had completely washed her hands of her husband. Just as he had only married her for what she represented, rather than out of any love for her, she had treated him in just the same way. He had only been a crown for her, and once the crown was gone, she was too. You might expect this to be the moment where Satilia leaves the stage, quietly slipping off to live a quiet, anonymous life with some boring senator. But no, she does have one brief swan song. 
The death of Nero led, of course, to the accession of Galba, a man with no real familial connection to the Julio-Claudian family. So far, every Roman emperor claimed the great part of their legitimacy from being the descendant of the divine Augustus. Galba's claim was what, that some soldiers had decided that he would make a better emperor than Nero? Well, that level of legitimacy could be conferred on almost any man who led a sizable amount of troops. And everyone knew it. This led to the crazy year of 69, also known as the Year of the Four Emperors. One of these men, the second in fact, was none other than Papir Sabina's ex-husband, Otho. He was still right where we last saw him, governor of Lusitania. He had joined Galba's rebellion, though, and marched with him towards Rome, and seems to have got it into his head that he was a dead cert to be named as his heir. He was considerably younger than the elderly new emperor, and had all the governing experience and aristocratic pedigree that an aspiring heir would need. He had consulted astrologers, who all agreed that he would be emperor one day, and spread a lot of money around a lot more money, in fact, than he actually had, in order to gain support. But his hopes were dashed when Galba instead named someone else as his heir. Furious and desperately in debt, Otho decided to take matters into his own hands. He purchased the services of a few Praetorian guardsmen, who induced the rest of the guard to acclaim him emperor and have Galba murdered. In this, he succeeded and managed to make his astrologer's prediction come true, His reign, though, would be a very short one, as yet another Roman general had pretensions of power, this one being a man named Vitellius, would send an army that would defeat Otho's forces and lead to him being crowned emperor and Otho to commit suicide. However, one thing of note that Otho did do in his reign was start up a relationship with Satilia. We're not sure how far this all went. Indeed, our main record of this is a passage in Suetonius, which states that, just before committing suicide, Otho, quote, wrote two notes, one of consolation to his sister, and one to Nero's widow Messalina, whom he had intended to marry, commending to her his corpse and his memory. Then he burned all his letters to prevent them from bringing danger or harm to anyone at the hands of the victor. The fact that Otho not only thought to write to Satilia in the moments before his death, and commended to her his body for burial, does suggest that talks of marriage between them were very advanced indeed. Satilia does make a great deal of sense for Otho. He had precious little claim to the throne, and so marrying a former empress would improve his position somewhat in that regard. She did have that little bit of imperial stardust that might increase his standing. Unfortunately for them, Vitellius proved that might was right in that crazy year but Statilia did come very close to, against all the odds, holding on to the emperorship even after the suicide of her husband. That would have been quite the comeback. After this, though, Statilia did fall through the cracks of history, and we know nothing of her later life. She had great survival instincts, though, so I like to think that she did okay. Statilia was the last of the Julio-Claudian empresses, Starting with Livia all the way back in 27 BCE, these women had, to a greater or lesser extent, defined what it was to be the first woman in the Roman Empire. Some had held great power and influence, some had not. Some were reviled, some were loved and cherished. 
but all of them played their part in the writing of this new chapter in the story of one of history's greatest empires. And with that, we must close the book on their tale and look ahead to the future. Now, you may have noticed that I've been rather quiet on the social media front recently, and that this episode was, as I warned last time, a little late. That is because I've actually taken a new job and moved back from Oxford, where I've been living since the start of both this podcast and the Queens of England, back to London, my hometown. The wife and I are currently looking for a new place and are in temporary accommodation right now, so what with the new job starting as well, everything's in flux. I'm telling you all of this because I'm sadly going to have to move this podcast from being a weekly show back to being fortnightly. I'm hoping that this will purely be a temporary thing, and that once things settle down, I'll be able to go back to being a weekly podcaster. That is what I prefer, and I'm sure you will too, but things are just a bit too crazy right now. So, as previously planned, I'm about to go on hiatus for four weeks, while I prepare to start the new show, and from there, you will get a new episode every fortnight. But on what, you ask? Well, my wonderful patrons over on Patreon have been voting on a new topic, and the result has been pretty overwhelming. It involves a massive jump ahead in time, around 1800 years in fact, from the ancient world's greatest empire, the Romans, to the modern world's largest one, the British Empire, and the daughters and granddaughters of Queen Victoria. Europe in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, was dominated by monarchies, with Queen Victoria of the United Kingdom ruling as the continent's matriarch, the grandmother of Europe. She and her husband Albert's nine children married far and wide, and their children did the same, spreading a marital web that took in pretty much every country on the continent. It was intended that this would bring Europe, especially Britain and Germany, into closer harmony and lead to shared peace and prosperity. But instead, the daughters and granddaughters of Victoria would find themselves on opposing sides of the most terrible conflict in European history, as their husbands and sons would lead the continent into the charnel house of World War I. Amongst the women that we will cover include Empress Vicky of the German Empire, the long-suffering mother of Kaiser Wilhelm II, whose dreams of creating a liberal Germany were thwarted, first by Bismarck and then her son. There will also be Tsarina Alex of Russia, the wife of the last Tsar Nicholas II, who will be deposed by liberal revolutionaries and then murdered by the Bolsheviks. And Queen Marie of Romania, who dominated her husband and would lead her adopted country in all but name in one of the most tumultuous periods in its history. And many more women besides that. Tying in, of course, with the centenary of the end of the Great War, I will be calling the second season of the podcast The Mothers of the First World War, the daughters and granddaughters of Queen Victoria. So, Sunday the 19th of August, new season of the podcast, I hope to see you there. Music